This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Stoke Therapeutics' platform technology allows it to target genetic diseases where people have one functional copy of a gene and one mutated copy. As a result, they can only produce half as much protein as they need to maintain health. Stoke seeks to restore missing proteins by increasing the protein output from healthy genes to compensate for the non-functioning copy of the gene. The company's lead experimental therapy is an antisense oligonucleotide to treat the rare and progressive genetic epilepsy, Dravet syndrome. We spoke to Ed Kay, CEO of Stoke, about the company's platform technology, how it works, and its lead program in Dravet syndrome. Ed, thanks for joining us. Oh, you're welcome, and thank you for the invitation. We're going to talk about Stoke Therapeutics, its platform technology, and its efforts to develop antisense oligonucleotides to treat rare genetic diseases. Perhaps we can start with antisense oligonucleotides. Listeners may be familiar with this emerging area of therapeutics, often referred to as ASOs. What are these and how do they work? So the way to um, think of these uh, uh, antisense oligonucleotides is they work by pairing up with certain genes um, really on the human genome. And what we're trying to do, it's a, it's a genetic medicine, but it's not that we're trying to replace um, an entire gene like what you would do for gene therapy. What we're doing is we're changing splicing and we're altering um, you know, some of that uh, RNA output. And, and, and in our particular case, what we're trying to do is to compensate for a very low level of protein um, that was inherited as a genetic defect. And we're utilizing the normal RNA to increase the amount of full-length messenger RNA and protein to compensate for what's going on um, uh, in the body. So it's a way of, of, of taking care of uh, a genetic mutation without actually having to alter the mutation or put in a new gene. But just by changing splicing, we're able to correct for the deficiency. Stoke has a proprietary platform technology called Tango. What is Tango and, and how does it work? So Tango stands for Targeted Augmentation of Nuclear Gene Output. And it's a fancy name for a process where, uh, and this was um, an idea that was discovered by um, one of our scientific fo uh, founders, um, and uh, Adrian Craner, who was at Cold Springs Harbor in Long Island. 
And what he found is there were retained, naturally occurring retained elements on the pre-messenger RNA. And if you remember your biology, uh, you go from pre-messenger RNA to messenger RNA. And you do that by splicing out introns and other things and getting the kind of the business section of the gene, which is really encoding for the protein. What he found is that business section wasn't um, rewritten correctly. And uh, there were certain things that were stuck on, uh, certain elements. But if you spliced them out, you could actually increase the amount of protein that you were making. And um, the analogy that we've come up with is really, uh, you know, if you have um, in your, uh, your bathroom sink and you have, you have two uh, cold and a hot water handle, if you turn both of them on on half, you'll get a certain amount of water that's gonna enter into the bowl. Um, and what happens if um, uh, there's two ways to, and so if you turn off the hot water, uh, you're gonna have half the amount of water in the bowl, but there's two ways to compensate for it. Either you can turn back on that hot water or the other way you can do it is, is basically to open up completely that other spigot. And that's what we're doing. We're opening up that, that faucet to, uh, to compensate for the one faucet that's not working as well as it should. And uh, we do that by taking a normal copy of the gene and upregulating and compensated for the bad copy of the gene. Does that make sense? Yeah, given that approach, what's the potential range of conditions you can treat with this? Is, is it always a case where there's one functional copy of the gene? We do need at least one functional copy of the gene. That is correct, uh, for the most part. And we have a few different um, uh, approaches. So we are we're focusing on uh, dominant diseases. That means diseases that are passed on from one generation to another and 50% of the offspring. Um, uh, and where you're missing 50% of the protein. So that's kind of the easiest approach that we can use um, for this particular tango mechanism. But we can also upregulate other genes and pathways that could be very important. So when we look at all the genes and all the various different type of tango signatures, uh, we, we see that about 50% of genes actually um, could have a tango signature that might be able to be upregulated. And just looking at um, you know, genetic diseases, um, you know, we have about 1600 diseases that we've identified that could be upregulated. So it's a lot of diseases that we could go after, but we're right now we're focusing on the central nervous system and the eye primarily because those are very well credentialed um, delivery mechanisms. If you give um, the ASO um, through a spinal tap uh, in the back and the spinal cord, you can introduce it into the brain. And if you give it, um, uh, in the eye through an intravitreal injection, a lot of what's done for macular degeneration, drugs like Lucentis, uh, you get very good biodistribution in the retina. So we're using that mechanism of biodistribution to go after some of these targets that are a little bit easier to approach, and we don't need any really sophisticated uh, delivery systems to get into the organ. Your lead experimental therapy is targeting Dravet syndrome. For listeners not familiar with the condition, what is it and how does it manifest itself and progress? So um, it's a disease that is present in every um, ethnicity all over the world. It, it occurs at about um, the same incidence. It occurs in about one in 16,000 births. 
And it's a spontaneous mutation. In other words, it means that the parents don't carry it, but uh, the child is born and has a mutation and it's called the SCN1A gene, and that encodes for the NAV1.1 protein. And that's a, um, an ion channel, a sodium channel, um, and it's a subunit of the sodium channel. So you need a, an alpha and a beta subunit to come together in order to have it work. So these children are born, um, and they're missing 50% of this ion channel, the sodium channel. It is a, this mechanism, this tango mechanism that we're using is actually present in development. And, and these children don't really start to develop symptoms until they're about nine or 10 months of age. And the reason why that's the case is that the NAV1.1 protein is not essential prenatally, and it's not essential at birth. The level of, of this protein at birth is fairly, uh, it's fairly small. But what happens is this same mechanism that we're manipulating um, goes up and it reaches its adult stage at about nine months of age. So that's when these children start to get symptomatic and they're absolutely normal at birth. And they, what they have is seizures that are precipitated by uh, fevers. And, and if you have children, um, you'll know that children can have fevers precipitated by a lot of infections that are associated with a high fever. So any child can have a seizure with a high fever. But what happens in children with Dravet syndrome, they don't just have a, you know, a, a 10 second or a 30 second seizure. They have a seizure that could last for hours and needs medical attention and they have to be given medication to stop the seizure. Well, that's very unusual for a simple febrile seizure. And what happens is that um, they continue to have seizures uh, often again with fevers, but then they start having seizures without fever. And that's when they seek medical attention and they realize that they have some other inherited disease, disease that's causing the seizures. And typically what will happen is that clinical diagnosis of Dravet syndrome will be made. Uh, and they'll also have genetic testing that shows that there's a mutation in the SCN1A gene. So that's how these children are identified. Um, the, the problem, of course, is it's not simply a disease that just causes seizure. It's a syndrome that's associated with many other aspects in addition to seizures. And what we see is that these children, and as I mentioned, they're perfectly normal at birth. But then when the seizures start, they begin to have a slow loss of some of their cognitive abilities. Uh, they have problems. Um, with uh, behavior and other psychological problems, problems with gait that develop typically by the teenage years, problems with speech, sleep. Um, and unfortunately, about 20% of these children will die related to a seizure. It's called a sudden unexpected death uh, related to epilepsy or a SUDEP. Um, and that is one of the most um, terrifying things for the parents because uh, what they're afraid when these children go to bed at night that in the morning they may, may not wake, wake up because they may not uh, wake up from the seizure. And that's typically thought to be related to an apnea, a central breathing problem that occurs with the seizure. Uh, and so um, even though you can address the seizures with a lot of different medications, uh, anti-epileptics, uh, we don't address the other underlying problems with uh, the Dravet syndrome. And, and so these other symptoms, which are very worrisome, certainly to the families and to the children, 
are not addressed. And what we're trying to do is to come up with really the first genetic therapy that addresses the underlying cause of the syndrome and to try to take care and improve the seizures, but also to improve some of the other non-seizure uh, comorbidities that happen in the syndrome. I, I wanna get into that, but before we do, what's it like to live with this condition? How frequent are the seizures and what happens in a household when they occur? Yeah, that's, a, uh, that's obviously a really important part of this disease. And I think um, we had heard, we've certainly have spoken to families and have gotten an understanding, I think, of what happens to the families when uh, these children become symptomatic. But there was also a, a recent um, conference that was held by the FDA, and it was really to talk about these other aspects of the disease. So, you know, uh, typically as a parent, you know, you always want your, and you think your children are always going to be perfect and nothing's ever going to be wrong with them. And you have a child up until the first nine months of, of age that you think is perfectly healthy and doesn't have any medical problems. And then suddenly you realize you have this intractable seizure disorder. And then even, uh, I think worse, you realize that the child is not developing normally and in fact is losing some milestones that they previously had. And you know they have problems with the sleep. And I think the, the, the biggest concern with these families is that you know, they're, um, we've heard from mothers and fathers that talk about they're afraid to go to sleep at night because uh, they're afraid that their child could sleep, you know, could, could die during their sleep. And that's, um, you know, it's a, just a terrifying concept, I think, for any parent to have to deal with. And what you find is that um, there is at least one of the parents is really a full-time caregiver. They have, th these children are, have such a complicated medical story that one or, and, and often both of the parents are focused on, you know, you know, really just taking care of this child and keeping this child alive. And obviously that influences the rest of the family relationship. The other children are not receiving the same level of attention because they can't, because this child uh, needs so much medical attention. So the, I think the entire family dynamics has to change. And fortunately, a lot of families have extended family members that help with this. Um, so it, it, again, it's a disorder that affects the entire family and even the, the extended family. And I think it's uh, what we're hoping to do is if we can make these children a little bit more like back to normal uh, children, then that would really relieve the burden on the families and certainly on these patients. You mentioned some of the limitation of existing therapies, but what treatment options exist today and, and how effective are they? So really the only thing that has been available, and there's been two recent uh, products uh, that have been approved by the FDA for seizures in Dravet. Uh, but the problem is, and there's probably 25 different anti-epileptics that have been used in the syndrome. Uh, despite all of these therapies, about 90% of these children continue to have seizures that are uncontrolled. So that even with all of these, um, and even some newer therapies, um, you know, they're, they're still continuing to have seizures. And on our study, when we looked at these patients, we realized that at least 50% of the patients were on the most recently approved therapy. So even the best and the most recently approved therapy was inadequate to control the seizures and certainly was inadequate to control the other aspects of the disease. 
So uh, there's still, despite a lot of work that has been done in the last few years in Dravet syndrome, there's still a huge need for a therapy that not only can improve the seizures at a, at a better rate, but also to really try to address some of these other non-seizure problems that are occurring in these children. Oh, what is STK001 and, and how does it work? So as, as you started out at the um, beginning of the call, it's an antisense oligonucleotide. So it is um, basically what we're doing is we're pairing up um, uh, a nucleotide uh, and, and it, typically it's around 18 base pairs and it is modified uh, um, to not be broken down uh, by the normal uh, endonucleases that are present within the body. So it's a fairly, so it's an artificial molecule um, that pairs up with the RNA, the pre-messenger RNA. And what it does is it alters splicing. So it interferes with some of the uh, splice proteins that are on that site. And it's very specific for that site. So what we uh, in, for instance, there is, um, uh, there's 10 other different um, sodium channels that are present in the body. And they're all very, very similar. They were made by homologous recombination. Um, and despite that they are almost identical, uh, uh, we only could upregulate the NAV 1.1. So it was very specific for the, that SCNA1 gene was the only one that we affected. So um, we know that it's very specific for that particular protein because you don't want to upregulate other things in the body. And certainly you don't want to upregulate the wrong protein. So from what we've seen, this is very specific. The other feature is that um, we can only upregulate um, uh, this protein if, it, if the ASO is in a, a cell that naturally contains the messenger RNA. So in other words, if it gets in the wrong location where you shouldn't make this um, protein, it doesn't matter because if that message isn't there, we can't upregulate it. So <clears throat> it's a very specific therapy that only really upregulates, as far as we know, only one protein. And it can only do it in the cells where it normally should be found. So it gives us an advantage, um, you know, and, you know, everyone, you know, always asks, well, why don't you just um, use gene therapy? Well, gene therapy would require us to take the entire gene, which is too big to package right now um, in, um, in, the, uh, in the normal vectors that are used. And, and also it wouldn't give us the specificity. It's, we wouldn't be able to titrate it uh, because we can use our ASOs like a drug and get what we're trying to do is take it from a 50% level and bring it up to a 100% level. With gene therapy, that's almost impossible to do. You can overshoot or undershoot, but trying to get it at exactly the right uh, amount in the right cells is a very challenging problem. And also CRISPR, gene editing, um, you know, people have looked at this too, but unfortunately for Dravet syndrome, there's over 1,700 different mutations. So you'd have to have 1,700 different drugs if you try to do a gene editing approach for this disease. So we believe that our Tango approach um, is the right method right now to try to address this underlying disease and upregulate that missing protein. If I understood you earlier, the belief here is that this would address not just seizures, but other comorbidities related to the condition? Yes, that is the hope because we're, because we are really trying to attack um, that underlying um, cause, which is that missing 50% missing protein. The hope would be 
um, that not only will we improve seizures, but we could improve some of the cognitive and the behavioral um, and the gait and sleeping and things like that. Uh, and that is the hope because um, the Dravet syndrome is not um, a neurodegenerative disease. In other words, you're not losing nerve cells. What's happening is they're not able to connect and, and talk to each other because you're missing this essential uh, ion protein uh, that's necessary for that electrical uh, discussion that occurs within the brain. And so what we're trying to do is to really reroute these electrical circuits by replacing that protein. And the hope would be is not only can we improve the seizures, but we can get, uh, since those cells are still alive, uh, we know that uh, remodeling can occur. And, you know, and, and there's evidence in animals that even in adult mice, you can have some improvements, not only in the seizures, but in the behavioral problems in the mice the mice model for um, the mouse model for Dravet syndrome, and so we the hope would be is that um, even much later on in the course of the disease, we'll be able to have some impact by rewiring some of those brain circuits. What's known about it from studies you've done to date? Well, um, we've done a, a fair amount of, of of work. We've done a lot of work on um, on mice, and that is in the murine model for Dravet. And uh, what was done by investigators at uh, Vanderbilt University a number of years ago is they created a mouse model that contained a human mutation. Um, and um, so it's missing 50% of the protein and has many of the symptoms um, that people would have um, with this mutation. And so what we found when we gave uh, the drug on the second postnatal day in these very severe animal models that we had about an 80% survival um, that, uh, you know, we had, a, or I should say, uh, without the, the uh, medication, we have an 80% um, uh, loss of life, but we have about a 97% survival if we give the medication. So a dramatic improvement in, in survival that occurs. Um, and in addition, then we wanted to know, in addition to the survival, what happens to the seizures? So what we were able to do is to implant electrodes within the brain in these animals and then follow them for a time. And what we saw was a dramatic reduction in the number of seizures that occur in these animals. And not only did they survive, but their seizures um, were also much better. And then um, obviously having a proof of concept in a mouse is one thing, but what happens in a much larger brain. So what we were able to do is to um, use non-human primates uh, um, and to inject intrathecally the ASO in these animals. And we saw a two to threefold upregulation of that missing protein, the NAV1.1. Now, again, these were in um, normal animals, so they already had 100%. So we were able to get up to two to 300% uh, of, of the amount of protein. So it, it demonstrated, and we also demonstrated that the ASOs got into many areas of the brain um, and they really went throughout the brain and we showed very nice upregulation, up even in some deeper structures. What we found is that most of the NAV 1.1 is found in the cortex, but that there are other structures such as the cerebellum and pons and, and thalamus that also contain NAV 1.1. And we were able to show um, 
that, uh, although not as much as what we saw in the cortex, but we were able to upregulate the NAV1.1 and some of those deeper structures of the brain also, suggesting that hopefully we can have an impact not only on the seizures, but on other aspects of the disease that um, is present. What's the regulatory path forward? So the regulatory path, we are in a um, um, phase one, two study, both in the US and the UK. And we will be um, really uh, reporting on uh, seizure and safety aspect of, in the second half of this year. And once we find um, the dose, and we hope that um, from the, this phase one, phase two data, we'll be able to know what the dose is. And we're also doing an open label um, extension study, and we're dosing every four months. And so we'll know what the duration of therapy, and we should have a very good idea of what the frequency of therapy should be. So once we complete our um, phase one, two study, then what we would do is have discussions with the regulatory authorities and go into a um, phase three study. And there, there is a precedent for, for this. Um, a couple of other therapies have recently been approved and it was really uh, looking at seizure uh, reduction. But what we would do in addition to seizure reduction, which would be the primary endpoint, uh, we would also look at cognitive and behavior um, aspects um, and quality of life uh, as secondary endpoints, because we believe that that's critical uh, for really the success of this therapy is to show that not only does it improve seizures, but improves other aspects of the disease. Listeners may remember you from your days as CEO of Sarepta. What did you learn from your time there about developing and commercializing ASOs that you're applying to Stoke? Well, I think um, one of the things that's always challenging, and certainly what we did at Sarepta, it's always difficult being the first one in a space. Um, and so what you end up having to do, and one of the things I think we learned is it's really important to understand the natural history. We were fortunate in Duchenne muscular dystrophy that there already had been a natural history uh, that we could compare to. But uh, for what we needed in Dravet syndrome, there wasn't... Um, uh, really a very good natural history that we could really know uh, how these patients decline. And also importantly, what behavioral and neurocognitive tests we should use to follow these patients. So uh, we did that. We learned that that was really important. That was probably the first step. And then I think what we learned is um, to really make sure that you understand the safety and really some of the characteristics of the drug. And we were able to show that the um, uh, pharmacokinetic uh, models that we developed in animals predicted what we needed to do um, in humans. And I think what we learned is that you need to make sure that you understand what the dose um, uh, th that's required, how much do you have to give, and how often do you have to give it. And then I think uh, one thing, of course, once you're ready for commercialization, you really have to be able to uh, be very well developed um, speak, you know, certainly not only with the patients and the families, but have uh, the physicians who have really understood the drug and how to use it and make sure that people know that th this therapy uh, could be very valuable and really making sure that people understand how to use the therapy, but also that this is an important medicine uh, to make your child hopefully function in a much more um, normal way. Ed Kay, CEO of Stoke Therapeutics. Ed, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you very much. Appreciate it.
Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com. 